I want you to walk away knowing that digestion is the foundation of your health, that your gut responds best to balanced, consistent meals, the stomach acid is good for you, and that it's not just about what you eat, but it's also about how and when you eat. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Once upon a time, I was obsessed with what I thought was me being healthy. I tracked my protein intake every day, and to me there was no upper limit of what was too much protein to eat in a day. So I would make sure that I got at least 100 grams, but if I got up to 150, 175 grams, that was like bonus points. In order to accomplish this intensely high protein intake, which I think was definitely a fad in the fitness industry, at least like five to 10 years ago, I don't know if it's still going on in some places, but it was like high protein is the way to be. But in order to accomplish this insanely high protein intake, I had to eat protein bars and drink protein shakes. And I pretty much drank one and ate one of those every single day. And I did it in the name of health. The crazy part was my digestion was terrible. I don't know if anyone out there can relate to the protein farts, but they are real. Stools were always loose. They were never formed. Clearly, my digestion was in shambles, but in my mind, I was being healthy. It's interesting because now I've learned so much about digestion, and I understand now that it doesn't matter what your diet looks like. If you can't actually absorb and use the nutrients that you're eating, it's never going to do you any good. So I'm sure that most of that protein that I used to eat was going right through me. I wasn't absorbing it and I wasn't actually building muscle from it. Instead, I was just completely irritating my GI tract. So that's why I care about this so much. That's why I think that digestion is an important thing to learn about and to dive into for yourself. If you don't know yet, I hope that you walk away from this episode knowing just how important your digestion is for your overall health and well-being. Last Monday, I had the opportunity to present a digestion workshop for our Strong Academy crew. Leading up to the workshop, we all filled in food and digestion journals for a week together. The reason we did this is I believe that it's important to approach learning about information, understanding, and having an awareness of where you are with something That way, when you learn about this topic, you know what applies to you, you know what you might be able to take and really absorb and use in your life moving forward, you can strategize ways that maybe you can improve your digestion. If you come in kind of cold, not knowing what your current state is, it might be harder to connect those dots. If that's something that you've never done before, I encourage you to do it for at least two days. In order to do this, you'll want to write down what you eat and at what time that you eat certain meals of the day. So for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and your snacks, what were the contents of that meal? You don't have to be crazy specific. This isn't meant to be about tracking your food, tracking your macros or your calories. It's just to see what were your sources of nutrients. And then next to those meals, you wanna track what your energy level was. I used a scale of one to four. 
And you want to write down what your energy level was anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes after you ate that meal. Then, in addition, you want to write down any digestive symptoms that you experienced throughout the day. This could be a wide variety of things. Gas, bloating, burping, headaches, stomach pain, nausea, anything that you feel like might be a symptom that's relevant to your digestion, write it down and what time you experienced that symptom. Also, you want to track your bowel movements. What time did you have a bowel movement? And I like to use the Bristol chart to classify bowel movements. It basically rates your poo on a scale of one to seven. So Bristol type one is very hard and is usually related to being somewhat constipated. And then Bristol type seven would be a very, very loose stool, usually related to diarrhea. So I encourage you to do this for a couple of days. Collect some information about yourself. Learn what your current digestion looks like. You might be able to connect some dots because you're writing this down on paper and you can look at it in a zoomed out view that maybe you haven't in your life before. So I think it's a really good exercise. I'm also just obsessed with journaling and reflecting in general, so this is something that I love to do. Digestion is the mechanical and chemical breakdown of food into small, usable molecules. The key word there being usable. Our food is made up of macronutrients and micronutrients. Many of you may have heard about this concept of macros, but macronutrients in our food provide the energy that allows us to do daily life, and they also provide the building blocks of many structures in our body, including our cell membranes and muscles. Micronutrients, on the other hand, provide the molecules necessary for the body to carry out its many, many functions. This includes everything from keeping your heart beating to building healthy bones to maintaining homeostasis in your blood and in your body to functions like eyesight and smell, neurological functions, like everything relies on micronutrients to function. Every cell that makes up every tissue that makes up every organ depends on the body's digestive system to provide the nutrients it needs to keep functioning. There are three main macronutrients, carbs, fats, and proteins. And all foods are made up of, of a combination of these macronutrients. We like to think of foods as being exclusively one macronutrient, like avocado is a source of fat. Well, yes, it's a source of fat, but it also has carbs in it. So the foods that we're eating are a combination of these three macronutrients. Carbohydrates provide a faster supply of energy for the body, fats provide a bit of a slower supply of energy for the body, and then proteins provide the building blocks that make up our muscles. I'm touching on this in the digestion episode because our body and our digestive system thrive on a balance of all three of these. You'll often hear me saying things like, you should strive to eat nutrient-dense, balanced meals, the balanced piece is talking about these macronutrients. Do you have a good source of carbs, fats, and protein on your plate at every meal? And then nutrient dense means that compared to the amount of energy that's in that food, there are a lot of micronutrients in it. When you think of empty calories, quote unquote, things that are empty foods, they're very high energy foods, but they don't provide a lot of micronutrients to nourish your body and to allow it to carry out all of these vital functions. If you've done a digestion journal, I want you to think about what you saw in it, or if you've done one in the past, think back to that. Think about what symptoms you saw, think about the timing of those symptoms, 
Think about what foods they might have been associated with. Think about how frequent or severe your symptoms were. What was your average Bristol type? Ideal Bristol numbers are a three or a four is generally considered normal. And then how often should you be having bowel movements? Once per day is generally thought to be ideal, but that's not a hard and fast number. If sometimes you go twice in a day, fine. If sometimes you skip a day, that's fine. It's just if you're regularly not having a bowel movement every day, then you might be a bit constipated. And if you're having multiple bowel movements within a day, you're probably not eliminating completely. After you use the bathroom, you should feel like you've completely eliminated the waste from your bowels. Ideally, you should feel energized and satisfied after you eat. It's somewhat common to experience an energy dip or to get sleepy or tired after you eat a substantial meal. If you feel tired or low energy, you could either be experiencing a blood sugar dysregulation problem, or this could be due to inappropriate or dysfunctional digestion. You're not absorbing the energy in your food to energize you. If you don't feel satisfied after you eat a meal or you find yourself still being preoccupied by food, like food is still a thought in your head, you're thinking about what else you might want to eat, then either you could not be eating enough, overall volume could be low, or you could not be eating the right breakdown of macronutrients for your body. I think people get very obsessive about what's the right breakdown of macronutrients And the reality is there's no one answer. Everyone is genetically a little bit different and the ratio that their body will thrive on is a little bit different. So there's no magic ratio out there that works for everyone. But if you find yourself unsatisfied frequently after you eat and you really do believe that you're eating enough at meals, you may wanna think about adjusting the ratio of macronutrients in your meals. I find that if I don't have a really good source of carbohydrates in my meal, I don't feel satisfied after I eat, and I really need that to feel good walking away from a meal. There are many, many symptoms that can be related to your digestion that you might not expect. Some symptoms like diarrhea or constipation or gas or bloating, we kind of intuitively know are related to our digestive system, but there are many others that you might not realize could be. Some of these include bad breath, body odor or strong smelling sweat, weak fingernails that break or chip easily, nausea, headaches or migraines, chronic fatigue, allergies or sensitivities, dark circles under your eyes, bizarre vivid dreams or nightmares, and these are just a few, but we'll continue to get into the reasons why these can be related to your digestion as we go along. So ideally, the way that digestion works is we eat nutrient-dense food, then break down and absorb the macros and micros from that food, which gives us energy and results in good function and optimal health. This is the reason that digestion is the foundation of your health and well-being. It's worth paying attention to. I think we often don't pay attention. We're really good at ignoring being bloated every afternoon or the fact that we get headaches once a week or having a little bit of gas in the evening. We just assume it's normal and we get so used to it that we don't pay attention to it, but that's your body telling you something important. Let's talk a little bit about the process of digestion. Digestion actually begins in your brain. It starts when you're planning your meal, thinking about what you're gonna be eating, at the grocery store, 
getting the ingredients for a new recipe. The sight, smell, and or thought of food triggers your salivary glands to produce saliva, and that is the actual first step of digestion, and it is a critical piece. Saliva contains an enzyme called salivary amylase that immediately begins to break down and digest starch, which is a carbohydrate in your food. So in the mouth, when food and saliva mix together, this process begins. And then, assuming you're actually chewing, the teeth also mechanically break down food in your mouth. Next, contractions of the smooth muscle in the esophagus propel the food downward. The cardiac sphincter is a muscular valve that separates the esophagus and the stomach, and it allows food to pass into the stomach. Now the food is called chyme, and it has arrived in the stomach, which is a critical organ for chemical and mechanical digestion. In the stomach, it's all about acid. The pH should be between 1.5 and 3 in your stomach. If you took any chemistry back in the day, you know just how acidic that is. If you didn't, just know that if you were to put that acid, that HCl, in a glass and stick your finger into it, it would start to burn the skin on your finger after a very short period of time. And that's a good thing. We want the stomach to be that acidic. The acidity in the stomach activates pepsin, which begins to digest protein. Keep in mind, this only happens when the stomach is acidic enough. Your stomach also plays a huge role in immunity and is your first line of defense against any pathogens that might have been present on or in the food you ingested. There have been studies on this that show that people with proper stomach acidity don't become infected when they're exposed to certain pathogens, while people with lower stomach acidity do become infected when exposed to those same pathogens. 90% of Americans have too little stomach acid. So what happens when you have low stomach acid? Your food will sit undigested in the stomach and cause lots of problems. The carbohydrates in the food will sit there and ferment, the fats will sit there and rancidify, and the proteins will sit there and putrefy. It's literally the food going bad in your stomach and it produces a lot of excess gas. This is what causes gas, bloating, and burping. The food sitting there in the stomach also damages the stomach lining. I say this about gas, but I also just want to say, FYI, a small amount of gas as you digest certain foods is a normal byproduct. If you're passing gas every once in a while, it's probably normal. But if it's frequent, if it's severe, if it's a lot of gas, if it smells really bad, then it might be abnormal. Is it causing you discomfort? If it is, then it's probably abnormal. What could cause low stomach acid if so many of us are suffering from this? The first big one is taking antacids or acid blockers. Another one is drinking soda, which impedes HCL production. Another is sympathetic dominance. I'm going to talk a little bit more, and I know I've touched on it in the podcast previously, about the difference between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. But for now, I'll just say that If you are someone that is constantly ramped up during your day, you're go, 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 on to the next thing, on to the next, you're rushed, you're very high focus, you're probably someone that's sympathetic dominant. You're never taking any breaks to slow down, to breathe. That would be sympathetic dominant. High stress also causes low stomach acid, which definitely can be related to sympathetic dominance. 
excess carbohydrate consumption can as well. And when I say excess, I really do mean excess. I'm not telling you to eat a low carbohydrate diet. Again, I believe in a balance of macronutrients. But if you're having multiple meals a day that really are primarily composed of carbohydrates, breads, pastas, refined sugars, then that could be a problem for your stomach acid production. Excess alcohol consumption can do the same thing. Allergies can sometimes cause low stomach acid. And then there are certain nutrient deficiencies that can as well, that can impede your body being able to produce enough HCL. And a couple of those include zinc or thiamine, which is vitamin B1. Antacids and acid blockers are the most commonly prescribed medications in North America. The pharmaceutical companies that prescribe these drugs make billions of dollars on this medication. And it works out quite well for them because it's a band-aid fix that's not getting at the root of the problem of what's going on, and once someone starts taking them, they're usually taking them for life. When you take an antacid, it's in the name, antacids reduce your stomach acid. It neutralizes it, which leaves food sitting undigested in your stomach, which causes a buildup of gas in your stomach, which causes a backward flow of the food and gas up into your esophagus. And the lining of the esophagus is not meant to handle the intense acidity that's in the stomach, so you'll feel a burning. Once you feel that burning, of course, you end up taking more antacids to neutralize that stomach acid. If this happens over and over again, over time, your cardiac sphincter will weaken, which exacerbates the problem even further. So why do these medications work temporarily? Because they do raise the pH of the chyme in the stomach, and then therefore it doesn't burn the esophagus as much. It just also impedes digestion in a really critical way. Let's assume that everything went well in the stomach. Then the food will travel into the small intestine via the pyloric sphincter. Appropriate acidity triggers the release of two things. CCK and secretin. CCK stands for cholecystokinin, and those two things are very important. If the chyme isn't appropriately acidic, then CCK and secretin won't be released. The small intestine is also lined by villi and microvilli, which are tiny structures that increase the surface area of the small intestine and therefore aid in absorption of nutrients. There is a supporting cast of other organs that assist the function of the small intestine. The first is the gallbladder, whose primary concern is fats. The gallbladder sits right up under the right side of your rib cage and collects bile that's produced by the liver. Two things are necessary for, for bile to flow into the small intestine. The first is the presence of CCK, cholecystokinin, the second is the presence of fats in the small intestine. We want this to happen regularly so that bile is flowing freely and on a regular basis. If bile sits in the gallbladder for too long, it will become really thick and viscous. And if it sits there over a really long period of time, this is when gallstones can be formed in the gallbladder. A couple of things can go wrong here. If the stomach is not acidic enough, then cholecystokinin, CCK, won't be released in the small intestine and bile will not be released from the gallbladder. 
Also, if someone's on a low fat or no fat diet, then the presence of fats won't happen in the small intestine and it will not trigger the release of bile, which means the bile will just sit in the gallbladder. In addition, poor quality fat diets can also cause the bile to become viscous. And what I mean by that is diets that consist of processed fats, vegetable oils, trans fats, oils that are oxidized, hydrogenated oils. These are all fats that we want to stay away from. I'm sure that many of us have people in our life or personally experienced gallstones, gallbladder attacks, and or gallbladder removals. It's likely due to one of these issues. It's very interesting because the low-fat diets of the 80s and 90s wreaked havoc on my parents' generation of gallbladders, and many, many of them have been removed. If you're someone whose gallbladder has been removed, then likely you need to be supplementing with bile salts in order to absorb and digest fats in your diet appropriately. So that's something to talk to a practitioner about if that's you. Many doctors consider the gallbladder to be a non-essential organ, but if you want to digest fats properly, that's not true. You really do need your gallbladder. The pancreas is another small intestine supporter. So remember, two things were released when the acidic chyme arrived in the small intestine. One, which was CCK, triggered the gallbladder to release bile. The second is secretin. Secretin triggers the release of bicarbonate, which neutralizes the pH, so the environment is no longer acidic in the small intestine, and pancreatic juice, which contains many, many, many important digestive enzymes, which continue the breakdown and absorption of carbs, fats, and proteins. If the stomach is not acidic enough, then bicarbonate won't be released, and the enzymes, which become active at a neutral pH, will not complete the chemical digestion of food. The results of this are not getting enough nutrients and not actually absorbing them and digestive upset. Let's assume that things went well in the small intestine, which means the food now travels down through the ileocecal valve into the large intestine. In the large intestine, water is recycled, vitamins and other remaining nutrients are absorbed, and then the waste is eliminated. If digestion is dysfunctional at some point along the way, then lots of undigested foods, so large particles, and extra microorganisms will end up in the colon. This can cause a couple of different things. First of all, it can cause the ileocecal valve to get jammed up, which is painful and not good. It can disrupt a healthy gut flora or microbiome, which we'll talk about in more detail later. It could damage the colon, which could lead to IBS, and then it could make worse diseases such as Crohn's, colitis, and celiac disease. Therapeutically, because of the cascade of events that really begins at the northernmost point, we support digestion from north to south. So if you are coming to see me as a nutritional therapy client, even if you're experiencing symptoms in your bowels, we would address the stomach first because if your stomach is not acidic enough, then we're never going to be able to fix and make better your digestion at different points down the line. Let's talk about water real quick. Hydration is critical for gut motility, especially in the bowels. Do you know how to calculate how much water you need in a day? What you do is you take your total body weight and you divide it by two, and that's the amount of ounces that you need. But you need to take into account any diuretics that you might be consuming. 
Diuretics are stimulants that make you urinate more often, and therefore they have a dehydrating effect on the body. These include coffee, tea, fruit juice, or any beverage with lots of sugar in it, soda. These are all stimulants that dehydrate you. So if you drink one of these, then you need to offset it with an additional 12 to 16 ounce glass of water. So you want to make sure that you're getting enough water to support your digestion. But ideally, you don't want to drink a ton of water at mealtimes. And this might be surprising to some people. I think there's a lot of advice out there about making sure that you drink water with your meals. There's even advice that says, take a bite and then take a sip of water, I guess to slow you down as you eat. But if you drink a ton of water with your meals, you're going to dilute your stomach acid and your pancreatic digestive juices, which is going to make the digestive process that much more challenging for your body. So ideally give yourself a little bit of a window of time before and after your meals, nothing crazy, maybe 15 or 20 minutes where you're not drinking fluids and that way all of your digestive juices can work their magic in your gut. Okay, now let's talk about the good stuff. How do you improve your digestion? What can you do? The first one is eat in a parasympathetic state. You have two channels of your nervous system. One is your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight nervous system. This is the one that you're in when you're ramped up, when you're at work, when you're with friends, anytime that you need to be on, you are in a sympathetic state. The second one is your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest system. And this is the one that you're in when you're in a calmer state. In general, these two channels of your nervous system, you're either on one channel or the other, but not both at the same time. You really need to be in a parasympathetic state to digest properly. So slow down, chew your food. On average, you need to be chewing your food 20 to 30 times with every bite. And of course, that depends on the density of the food. It depends on if the food is cooked or not, because cooking is a form of pre-digesting your food. It depends on how much water content the food has, but it's a good rule of thumb. So next time that you eat a meal, try it out. Try counting how many times you're chewing. If you're not chewing 20 to 30 times, then that's something that you want to think about. Being in a parasympathetic state is required so that your brain can trigger your salivary glands and trigger your body that you're going to be eating. It can send that signal and then it allows the digestive system, the rest and digest system to kick in and actually do its work. Another way to improve your digestion, and this is very much related to the last one, is reduce your stress. Stress keeps you out of a parasympathetic state. It reduces your HCL production and it has a big effect on your appetite. Some people experience low appetite with stress. That's the body being in fight or flight and not allowing you to be attuned to your hunger signals. And then some people stress eat, which is actually an adaptive method to try to calm the body down and put it, force it into a parasympathetic state. But of course that doesn't really work. I find that it's very common for people when they're really stressed out at work to say, Oh, I just wasn't hungry for lunch, so I didn't take my lunch. To me, that means you're not slowing down enough to even register what your hunger signals are in the middle of the day. So then when you get home, 
all of a sudden that hunger hits you all at once and there's no chance that you're going to be feeling slow, calm, and relaxed when you go to eat your dinner after you haven't eaten all day. So it's very important to reduce your stress so that you can listen to your appetite. We talked about this previously, but avoid antacids and acid blockers. You might also want to consider supporting your stomach acid production. This can be done through supplemental hydrochloric acid, but again, remember that acid is very strong, so it's something that you'd want to work with a practitioner on if you suspect that your stomach acid could be low. As I said, nutrient deficiencies can also be a cause of low stomach acid production, so you can do some testing to find out if maybe a nutrient deficiency is causing that for you. Fiber is another tool that you can use to support your digestion. It is not the end-all be-all of digestion like a lot of wellness gurus make it out to be. It cannot solve the problems that come from eating in a sympathetic state, an unbalanced diet, or low stomach acid. But it does play a role in digestion, so it's worth talking about. Fiber is undigestible carbohydrate, which means that it reaches the colon unchanged. There are two main categories, soluble, which can be dissolved in water, and insoluble, which doesn't dissolve in water. Soluble fibers are most commonly found in beans, lentils, and peas, and then they can be found in some fruits and vegetables as well. These are the fibers that will slow down your digestion. So if you're finding that you're getting Bristol chart numbers that are too high, this might be the type of fiber for you to focus on. Insoluble fibers, which include tougher fibers like whole grains, nuts, seeds, and then some fruits and vegetables as well, bulk your stool, support your motility, and speed up your digestion. So if you have Bristol chart numbers that are a little bit on the lower end, typically, this is the type of fiber that you want to focus on. As another note on fiber, fiber is best consumed in its whole food form. Lots of quote-unquote health bars and foods have huge amounts of fiber. Often they can be the second ingredient on the ingredient list. It's not really supposed to enter the gut that way in those large amounts without being attached to all of the nutrients that it normally comes with, and it doesn't do you nearly as much good in that form. Oftentimes, you'll end up with digestive symptoms that are unfavorable rather than favorable from those sources of fibers. The soluble fibers can come in two forms. They can be fermentable or non-fermentable. The fermentable fibers are called prebiotics. So let's talk about your gut microbiome. The microbiome is the billions of microorganisms, mostly bacteria, but also parasites and viruses that live in our gut. Fun fact, we also have a skin microbiome and researchers are thinking that we also have a brain microbiome. This is huge in the nutrition and medical community right now. There's so much research coming out about our microbiome and we really are just scratching the surface of understanding what it does for us. It does do so much work for us though, performs so many important functions. Everyone's gut microbiome is different and it should be diversely populated with many strains of these organisms. A couple of things that the microbiome does for us are supporting a strong intestinal wall that absorbs lots of nutrients, producing hormones that control appetite, mood, and anxiety. There's a very interesting mental health component to the microbiome, supporting immune function, and even regulating the expression of traits, which is called epigenetics. 
You can support your gut microbiome through the use of prebiotics and probiotics. Prebiotics serve as food or fuel for your gut microbiome. And examples of this are asparagus, chicory root, garlic, Jerusalem artichoke, and jicama. And then probiotics actually repopulate your gut. So these foods contain microorganisms that then you add to your gut biome when you eat them. Some of these include miso, kombucha, yogurt, sour cream, fish sauce, kefir, sourdough bread, sauerkraut, tempeh. These are all great sources of probiotics. And then there are lots of probiotic supplements out there as well. If you want to incorporate fermented foods into your diet in small amounts, I think that is awesome. It's a great thing to do. However, I don't really recommend arbitrarily taking probiotic supplements if you don't know why you're taking them. The gut microbiome is intensely complicated. We don't really understand what certain strains do for us, what ratios of strains we want to have and that support health. So if you're taking a probiotic, which has a certain type of microorganism over a long period of time, you probably don't have enough information about whether that strain is really right for you and helping you or not. So that's just my two cents. I know that people have a lot of different opinions about probiotics. It's very interesting though that every single traditional food culture intuitively incorporated some kind of fermentable food into their diets and often they ate it before mealtimes. They instinctually knew that it would serve them, it would serve their gut health and aid their digestion. One thing that probiotics can be really good for is to repopulate your gut after a bout of antibiotics. Antibiotics are meant to kill off microorganisms because we want to kill the bacteria that is infecting us. But they don't only kill the strain, the bad strains. They also kill off many of the healthy strains that exist in your gut. So if you've been on a bout of antibiotics, probiotics can be a great thing to take afterwards. Antibiotics are one thing that can damage your gut microbiome. There are others as well. Refined sugar, alcohol, trans fats, and tap water also damage your gut microbiome. The reason tap water does is because it contains chloride. Think about chlorine and what it's meant to do in a pool. We put it in pools so that we don't get infected from other people's bacteria when they've been swimming in the pool. So it kills off microorganisms. Well, it does the same thing in your gut. And depending on your water treatment system in your city, your water purification system, your tap water might contain unideal levels of chloride. So drinking filtered water is ideal to make sure that you're not getting too much chloride. In addition, to improve your digestion, you want to consider when you're eating. I talked about it a lot in my sleep episode of the podcast, but your circadian rhythm dictates when certain digestive enzymes are most active in your body. And in general, that happens when the sun is up. I know that in Canada in the winter that it feels like the sun is up for like five or six hours a day, so maybe you don't apply this rule quite as much in the winter, but in general, you want to be eating when the sun is up. Eating too late at night will result in undigested foods sitting in your stomach, which damages your gut and disturbs your sleep. Likely, you'll wake up feeling really full after that. When I talk about when you're eating, you also want to make sure that you're eating consistently throughout the day. The gut in general responds very well to consistency. Think about the rule of threes, which Anna Sweeney talked about when she was on the podcast. 
You wanna be making sure you're eating three meals a day and two to three snacks, which equals that you'll be eating about every three hours. And the gut will respond very well to that if you do that throughout your day. When I say the gut responds well to consistency, I also mean consistency about what you're eating. For example, if you never eat dairy, and then all of a sudden in one sitting, you eat a big pint of ice cream, your gut isn't going to respond well. Even if you're not technically lactose intolerant, it's just not used to digesting that food. The same thing can happen with all different types of food, including beans. So if you're thinking about incorporating a food into your diet that you don't normally eat, that's great, but ease your gut into it to make sure that it doesn't have aversive symptoms as you introduce it. Another way to improve your digestion is to put your phone down. Put your phone down and your computer and your TV and your tablet while you're eating. Connect with your friends and family over a meal. Be intentional about eating. Studies show that how you feel about the food you're eating affects how you digest it. This ties into the conversation we've been having about food freedom as well. If you have anxiety or guilt around the food that you're eating, you're not going to digest it as well. So anything you can do to feel good about your food, to be really present with it, that is going to aid your digestion. I know this doesn't come across as the biggest, flashiest solution, but I can't stress enough the importance and the difference that it makes. You don't need a supplement to fix your digestion if you're constantly eating, completely distracted, if you're not stopping your workday and you're continuing to do emails through lunch, like that's step one of fixing your digestion. A quick word on leaky gut, because I know that this is a buzzword that's been going around the media in the last couple of years. A healthy gut, absorbs nutrients into the bloodstream. So it is supposed to allow certain nutrients to pass through the gut